Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You've established the earth, and it stands fast. By your appointment, they stand this day. For all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you've given me life. I'm yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Those are verses 89 to 96 of Psalm 119, verses 73 to 96 of which are the psalm appointed for today, Wednesday, July the 27th, 2022. <clears throat> You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. We're continuing our look at the book of Judges, chapter 3, verses 12 to 30. We're uh, still in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 27 verses 45 to 54. We finished with Romans yesterday, so today we're going to begin the book of Acts, the first 14 chapters of the first, first 14 verses, sorry, of the first chapter. So in the passage from Judges, there's a lot going on in here. There are these weird little details that we're going to get over and over in this. Um, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gives them to to Moab. He gathered to himself the Ammonites, the Eglon, and the Amalekites. The Amalekites are the ones that Saul is supposed to conquer and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. So 18 years, they're under the king of Moab, which would have been a horrible, horrible thing for them as far as their national psyche was concerned. Because remember who Moab is. It's it, Moab, the, the original Moab, the person, was the product of the incestuous um, sexual encounter between Lot and one of his daughters. And so that's the origin story of the Moabites. Now, it gets redeemed, obviously, when, when you get to Ruth, but, but along the way, now you've got this, this king, Eglon, which sort of sounds like the word for sacrifice in Hebrew. And so he's now over Israel for 18 years. That's how angry God was with the people for the evil that they have done, which is to go after other gods. And then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. And now, so this is, again, language of the Exodus. The people cried out, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer as well, right? He heard their cry, and he raised up the deliverer. And who was the deliverer in that case? It was Moses. Here, we're told that, that he is Ehud, the son of Gera, a Benjamite, a left-handed man. So Ehud is the name of this man. Gera is his father. His tribe is the tribe of Benjamin, and he's left-handed. Okay. <laughs> so Benjamin means either son of the south or son of the right hand. The name itself does. Ben means son of, and then the rest of it means either south or right hand. Now, either of those is a perfectly acceptable translation because the way that um, that the Israelites oriented themselves in the land would be to turn their back to the Mediterranean. So the, the Mediterranean in the west is behind them. So then on uh, to the east would be directly in front of them. And what would be on their right side? That would be the south. So it's, it's uh, ironic that this Benjaminite, Ehud, the son of the right hand, is a left-handed man. And e- Eglon is going to be the sacrifice. So the people of Israel sent tribute to him 
by him, Ehud, to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made himself a sword with two edges, a double-edged sword. So it's going to cut all the way in. There's not going to be any resistance as he inserts it into something. So he's not going to slash with it. He's going to insert it. And with the double edge, that's exactly what it would signify here. A cubit in length, so it's 18 inches long, so it's a pretty good-sized sword. And he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. So he's going to reach across his body and get this thing. Well, here's the thing, is, is that that's the way it worked. And so he was, he was counting on something here. He was counting on the, uh, the security detail for Eglon to... To basically check, and their, their assumption is everybody's right-handed. There was there was not not really anything good associated with left-handed people, and so the the expectation is anybody in this position would be a right-handed man. So they would have checked his left thigh. So he put it on his right thigh under his clothes, and he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man, so it's a fattened sacrifice. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. So whatever the thing was, the, the tribute that was brought, he told his people to go away. And when Ehud had finished presenting, the, well, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he, the king, commanded silence, and his attendants went out from his presence. So Ehud sends his people away, Eglon sends his people away. And Ehud came to him while he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. Now the roof chamber is the same place where, not not this particular one, but the roof chamber is the place where um, Rahab hid the spies. It's also, the roof chamber is the place where Peter was when he was resting at the home of Simon the Tanner, when... Cornelius sent his emissaries to tell Peter to come. So there's a there's a place on the roof in the in the cool of the day. It's a place for rest and relaxation, sort of like the hammock on my back porch. So he says he ar- he arose from his seat once he heard that he had a message from God. So he arose and as Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh and thus thrust it into the belly of the king. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he didn't pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. So he, so he pierced the bowel when he went in. But, but the man was so fat that, that the fat closed over the entire sword. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited until they were embarrassed. What does that mean? Well, it means that, man, he's taking a long time in there. Is he okay? But when he still didn't open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sirah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. When you sound the, hill, the trumpet, that's a call to arms. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Now we don't know that Ehud 
actually was the was the judge over them for 80 years but what we do know is is that that there was rest there was peace in the land for this 80 year period following the defeat of the moabites in the gospel today we see the end of the crucifixion story now when the sixth hour from the sixth hour so uh, noon until the ninth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour which is three o'clock and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now that is, for most Israelites, they would have recognized that, or should have at least, as a reference to, because it's part of, Psalm 22, which we say, which we recite on uh, Maundy Thursday, so the Thursday prior to Good Friday. We will recite that. It's important that you understand the context of why why have you forsaken me it's this the entire psalm and so when jesus makes that statement which is psalm 22 1 it, it goes on to the rest of it why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning oh my god i cry day by day but you don't answer and by night but I find no rest. And then it goes in this whole thing. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And then it goes through this entire horrible thing. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You've rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. And then there's a promise on the backside of this. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. Will I praise you? So he, he's saying, when you save me, then I will uh, tell everybody what you've done for me. And it's exactly the same kind of thing that Jonah cries out from the belly of the fish when he says, ultimately, salvation belongs to the Lord. He said, when I went down to the pit, when I went down to Sheol, blah, 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 then you delivered me and salvation belongs to the Lord. So my God, my God, why have you forsaken me is only the beginning of the psalm. And so what, what we need to do is then read that rest of that in context. It's a man troubled deeply in spirit who can't see any way out, that makes a vow to the Lord to praise him in the great congregation when he has delivered him. His faith is that he will deliver him. And so here, that's exactly what you get when Jesus says this. But some of the bystanders hearing it thought the man's calling Elijah. They misunderstood him. Now, was it because of his Galilean accent that they didn't understand him? Or these people Romans? Who knows who they are? And one of them at once ran and took a sponge filled with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He died. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city, Jerusalem, and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. So they see the signs of the earthquake and, and all the other things. And in that moment, this centurion <clears throat> says, truly this was the Son of God. Because they see the signs in the earth. Not They didn't see the healings. They didn't see the other miracles Jesus had done. No, what they saw was the sign 
at his death that pointed in the direction of who Jesus truly was. And then if you knew that, if you came to believe that in that moment, in that hour, what would you think? How would you process that? We have just killed the Son of God. These signs that that Matthew tells us about, only Matthew tells us about these, by the way, um, these signs would all would, when the curtain is torn in the temple. That means the veil between heaven and earth has been rent. That means there's no longer anything like a holy of holies because Jesus has passed through all of that and done away with every single bit of it. And so there's this powerful statement here of all these things. The resurrection from the dead begins at this time, but it's not a permanent resurrection from the dead. These people are not going to continue to live. Now, it's the walking dead is what's happened. It's a very bizarre story that Matthew tells here, and we, we don't see this in the other Gospels at all. But, but we believe that Matthew's a faithful witness. So we believe that, that this must have happened, right? I mean, I can deny it, but, but is it any less likely than the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? So do we believe it? Do, do we say, yep, that must have happened? Because Matthew says they, he appeared to many. There would have been witnesses to this thing. Matthew says, I'm just making this up. But, but we've killed the Son of God was the reaction of the centurion. And then what do you do to fix that once it's happened, right? So in the Acts, it starts with, in the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So Luke is the author in Theophilus. We don't know if that's a real person or not. It means God lover. Um, it so he's telling him, I gave you an investigative report on the things that happened up to and including the resurrection of Jesus, and now I want to tell you what's happened next. And so this is the second part of the story. It's the way that Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, continues to work in the church and establishing the church on the earth. He said he presented himself alive to them, the apostles, after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So during a 40-day period, there were times when Jesus appeared to the disciples, is what he's saying, that they can attest to this. And when he did, he spoke about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So before that, remember in John's gospel, John tells us that Jesus appeared to them on the night of the resurrection and breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. That it was for a specific thing. It, it had to do with forgiveness of sin. Here, he says, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And, and one of the things that can be problematic for people in, in traditions like ours, or Roman Catholics, Lutherans, Methodists, is, is that, that we don't see the, the statement that he's making here, this baptizo, the, the statement that Jesus is making, the, the uh, word for baptized, is baptizo, and it means this covering somebody in water. It's taking a bath, essentially. And so when he breathed on them, then he gave them something. But when they're baptized with the Holy Spirit, that means you're going to be completely covered in the Spirit. You're going to be covered up in it. It's going to come all over you. It's not just going to be this one-time little thing. No, it's going to be something remarkably different. And then he continues, So when they had come together, the apostles, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? 
He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons. The Father is fixed by his own authority. You know, you're asking a question that I don't have the answer to, and you don't actually need to know that. It's interesting that, that he would say this, because remember, when, when they ask him when the end is to come, he says, nobody knows that except the Father. I don't even know it. But here he's telling them, it's, it's not for you to know these things. And you know what? I, I had a guy that, that I met in Pauly's Island. We came out of a, a Bible study that somebody taught, and I was just chatting with him. And then we ended up at his car, and then what we did was I ended up looking at 7,000 charts and timelines and everything else about the end times. Jesus says that's not even important. That's not the, those things aren't given to you. We're to see the signs, but we're not to have a date certain. He says, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So what they're hoping for is knowledge. And what Jesus says, no, you're going to get power. You have all the knowledge you need because your job is to prepare people for the coming, no matter when it is. It's not to tell them, be ready on this day. No, it's to be ready every single day. And you're going to get power. When the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and that's going to make you my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so what it is is a widening circle from Jerusalem, which is part of Judea, to all of Judea now, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that's kind of the way it goes. It's the way that the gospel goes forward in the early church. It goes from Jerusalem to Judea, that outer ring, and then into Samaria, which is where Philip goes after the stoning of Stephen. So when they, and then to the ends of the earth. So when they had come together, they asked him, well, no, I'm sorry, I just read that. Oops. <laughs> so, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee. So these are all Galileans that Jesus had called to himself. Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So get to work. Go. Move on. He'll come back later, and he'll come the same way. Then they returned to Jerusalem for the, from the mount called Olivet, the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away, except during Passover and any of the other pilgrim feasts, it's included in the environs of Jerusalem for the sake of fulfilling the commandment to be in Jerusalem for those festivals. But it's, it's a day's journey, so it's a Sabbath day's journey. It's a short distance out there. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. So it's all the eleven who remain. And all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So he's brought the family in. The family who questioned him earlier in the gospel and wanted to say maybe he's lost his mind. Now they're there as well. They are there praying with the disciples. They themselves have come to believe. And so you get the women, which would have included Mary, the mother of Jesus, and then also Mary Magdalene and some others who were with them during this period of time. And so it's they're bringing all things together. Jesus is, is leaving. He's going to be gone for 10 days. He will come back at Shavuot, the Feast of Passover, which is celebrated today. It's a harvest festival, but it's celebrated today as the day that the law was given. And so now it's going to be the day the Holy Spirit's given to interpret the law, to know the law, to write it on our hearts. That's the point and purpose of the giving of the Holy Spirit is to enable the work of the church, 
but it's also so that we can know. So we'll have knowledge that's unique because it comes directly from the Holy Spirit living in us, and then we'll have power to go and do the work of authenticating the truth that we proclaim. It's important for the church to be committed to both those things, to knowledge and to power. I've seen it build churches, and I've seen it build faith. It's built my faith many, many times to see the works of God. And that's the thing sometimes I think we lose in the church today. What was the witness of the church, or the, not the church, but the, but the nation of Israel? It's the things God had done for them and the Word. It's those two things combined. And, and Jesus gave us the Spirit so that we could continue to see the revelation of Him through the power inherent in His people and in His church. But the revelation of the Word then is authenticated by the revelation of the power given to those who proclaim that Word. We need to walk in that power. We need to walk in that confidence. We need to understand the mission we've been given to do, and we need to slay the dragons as Ehud slayed the king of Moab. We need to be willing to slay the dragons that oppose the people of God. And we don't do it with swords. We do it by the word of God and the power of God.